Today's show is brought to you by Real Life Baby. Real Life Baby is a fabulous online resource where you will find a variety of tips on baby and toddler well-being in addition to the most thoughtfully sourced baby gear eco shop. Real Life Baby is a great resource for parents looking to surround their little ones with the safest, most nurturing materials available. I'm personally a big fan of the humanely sourced wool products. You can explore the Real Life Baby shop by heading to their website at reallifebabyecoshop.com. And for a short period of time, you can even get 10% discount by using the code CRICKET10, all one word. That's C-R-I-C-K-E-T-10. That's reallifebabyecoshop.com, discount code inspired after my own little bun in the oven, CRICKET10. Welcome back to another episode of the Fed and Fit Podcast. I am your host, Cassie Joy Garcia, and today I'm thrilled to bring you uh, a really wonderful guest. Her name is Lily Nichols. She is a registered dietitian slash nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course, of the same name, presents a revolutionary nutrient-dense lower-carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Her unique approach has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. It's very cool. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides the evidence 920 citations and counting, that's wonderful, that supports a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. It's what we all want to learn about, especially those of us that are currently pregnant, planning to get pregnant, or it's just, maybe we're just generally curious. Lily is also the creator of the popular blog, www.pilatesnutritionist.com, which explores a variety of topics related to food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. Welcome to the show, Lily. Thank you for having me, Cassie. Thanks for coming on. This is so exciting. Well, um, I would love it if you could share a little bit more about your story, your background, what led you to this profession in particular, and then with this brand new book, why are you focusing now on prenatal nutrition? Yes. I'll start from the top. Um, You know, I got interested in nutrition from a young age. I'm one of those rare people who decided like in high school, I'm going to study nutrition and then (laughs) stuck with it. Everyone's like, you'll change your major, you'll change your mind. And I was really into it from, from the beginning. Um, pretty soon after I finished my training, my, you know, academic training, training and clinical training, I started working, um, more in gestational diabetes and prenatal nutrition. Um, I worked with the state of California for their diabetes and pregnancy program, which was called sweet success. And it was there that I was able to see both, you know, clinically and at the public policy level, you know, what really more in depth of like why and what all the dietary recommendations are in pregnancy and then what works and doesn't work. And what was um, kind of disappointing for me was um, when I was working clinically and implementing the guidelines that I had helped create at the state level, a lot of my patients' blood sugar was getting worse (laughs) and that was... Um, really, you know, set off a lot of red flags in my mind and really made me question the um, current recommendations. And eventually that led to me developing my 
um, real food approach for managing gestational diabetes, which is much higher in nutrients. It's also lower in carbs, of course, because we know carbohydrates are what raises blood sugar. But I was really the first dietitian to at least publicly speak out about in the problems with those recommendations, um, and which eventually led to me writing my book. And then once I released the book on gestational diabetes, it really kind of um, took on a mind of its own. And I got so many requests from doctors and midwives and OBGYNs who were recommending my book to their non-diabetic clients, like non-diabetic pregnant women. So imagine you're a pregnant woman and your doctor's like, here, read this book. And they're like, uh, do I have gestational diabetes? Like, what's going on here? Um, and so that really, you know, started making it clear I needed to write a book on, you know, prenatal nutrition more generally. And between writing the first and now the second book, I had a baby myself. So I learned a lot just personally going through that process and all the frustrations of, you know, what's true and what's not true about prenatal nutrition. And I found myself in this, in this sort of space of, you know, you either follow the guidelines at face value and trust that what they say is accurate, or you follow some other, you know, popular book that's just the author's opinions, but it's not backed in with any evidence. So you really don't know who to trust. Um, I personally approach nutrition from more of an ancestral paleo-ish approach, and I like to learn from what traditional cultures have done for you know, thousands of years to have healthy pregnancies and stay healthy without chronic disease. And so that really, um, you know, colors the lens th through which I view nutrition information. But I also want to have things backed by evidence. So that's really what I've tried to do in my forthcoming book. Hence why it has so many citations, like, you know, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> um, was that I want people to have a trustworthy source of information that's also accurate and up to date. So. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm at. That's wonderful. Wow, what a really cool undertaking and, uh, and profession to pursue. I'm just curious, uh, what have been some of your, I'm blindsiding Lily with this question, but yeah. what, what have been some of your favorite client success stories? I would just love if you could, if you can pick one that maybe floats to the top of your mind. Oh gosh, um, well I'll have to float back to gestational diabetes because that's so much of my focus and my practice. Yeah. Um, I had a gal, so typically with gestational diabetes, if a, if a woman requires medication or insulin to manage her blood sugar in one pregnancy, it's likely that she'll need it again. So, well, I'll back up. If you have gestational diabetes in one pregnancy, odds are that you'll have gestational diabetes in your second pregnancy and third pregnancy and so on. If medication or insulin is needed, typically those will be required again and usually in higher doses. It's assumed that it just gets like it snowballs over time. Gotcha. I had a gal who had had three pregnancies, all of which had required insulin to manage her blood sugar. She was now in her fourth. So I'm like, okay, like all, all the odds are stacked against you for managing this with diet alone. So I was very upfront with her that, you know, we can do a lot with food, but we still might need some insulin or medication. Totally okay. Anyways, she ended up going through her entire pregnancy without needing any medication. Her blood sugar was spot on the entire time. All of her other babies had been born on the bigger side, which is one of the risk factors with gestational diabetes. And this one was like an even eight pounds, one ounce. It was like just everything. She didn't have the swelling. She didn't have the blood sugar as high. Her baby didn't grow, you know, too big. She was able to have a beautiful vaginal delivery. It was just 
it was just great. So um, that's one of the biggest ones that sticks out in my mind because it goes opposite of what all the, all the statistics and all the research will tell you is possible. That's very exciting. Wonderful. Man, um, what a neat way to touch somebody's life. Yeah. So I, I'm curious now. There's, I get a lot of questions. Um, at this point, by the time the show airs in complete transparency, Lily and I are chatting in late December. <laughs> um, and the show will air in late February when your book, your brand new book is available. Yes. Um, so by now, I'll have a baby on the ground and, yeah. uh, you know, life will be very different. But through this pregnancy, she's not here yet while you and I are chatting. She's due in a couple weeks. Um, but through this pregnancy, I've gotten a lot of questions. I'm a certified nutrition consultant, and I have my own professional opinions. Um, and then also, of course, what I call, you know, my perfect you plan is part of my online, you know, food and fitness essentially lifestyle design that I help walk folks through to figure out what works for them um, to kind of individualize thoughtful nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Uh, and so folks are watching what I'm eating and putting in my body during pregnancy. And I've gotten a lot of questions about, you know, what are the important foods to focus on? So I would love it if you could, um, if you could share your thoughts on you think, the foods to prioritize most during pregnancy, um, and let's say if somebody is newly pregnant or thinking about it, what do you? What are the top three or four that you think they should start focusing on, including in their diet? Absolutely, that's a great question. Um, and I, I, I've been stalking your Instagram account, so I, <laughs> I, I approve of what you've been putting in your body to nourish, yeah. to nourish you and baby right now. Um, that's it's it's. Uh, I'll, I'll give my answer, but I'll give a caveat for early pregnancy because early pregnancy is sometimes the trickiest time to switch over to some of these nutrient-dense foods because oftentimes food aversions and nausea and stuff creep in. Right. But um, with that said, and we can go into that, you know, how to manage those things or why those things um, happen because there is a reason for those things to come up. Um, I will talk about some of the foods that are really important for for providing you and your baby with the nourishment needed to have, you know, a healthy pregnancy and to encourage um, normal or optimal development of your baby. So, you know, a lot of women feel that they should be eating certain foods during pregnancy and a lot of traditional cultures actually prize certain foods before, during, and after pregnancy. And I found that really interesting when I started looking at, especially the conventional nutrition guidelines and seeing the foods that are um, recommended, like the sample meal plan that I've seen is, is like oatmeal, skim milk, and strawberries. And like that's breakfast, which is kind of opposite of what I recommend because there's like no protein in there and very little fat, not very satisfying. And if you look at a, you know, a micronutrient breakdown of what's in there, you know, you're not going to get barely any vitamin B12, barely any choline, like all these nutrients that are important for brain development. Mm -hmm. So when you start breaking it down and sort of what I call like reverse engineering a perfect prenatal diet. We look at the nutrients that are most needed for fetal development, the ones that are most lacking in our diet, and then look at the foods that provide those. So eggs, definitely top of my list. Um, most women can stomach them too. Uh, you know, again, depending on if the food aversions have really crept in, but Eggs are fantastic. They're really rich in a um, B vitamin, which is, uh, or a, 
a relative of the B vitamins. It was identified after all the B vitamins were, were set early on in the 1900s, but it's called choline. And choline is really important for brain development and vision development. And it's uh, very difficult to get in our diets. The two main places we get it are eggs and liver. And I know you hide liver and meatloaf, just like I hide liver and meatloaf. And that's definitely on my list of healthy foods. But a lot of women don't are unfamiliar with how to use it or don't like the taste or whatever. And if that's you, eggs are really going to be your primary source of choline. There's a lot of other good stuff going on in eggs as well. So you have like vitamin B12 and you have omega-3 fatty acids, um, including the, the other really important nutrient for brain development, which is DHA. You have vitamin A and E and vitamin D. There's a lot of good stuff in eggs. They're, you know, very rich in protein, which is very satisfying to keep you, you know, hungry and, and help manage cravings. Um, so eggs are definitely top of the list. That's an easy sell for most women too. Um, liver, like I mentioned, is also important if, if you can get by the, you know, if you're not used to eating it, you have to kind of figure out ways to fit it into your diet. And I usually like you hide it into, into other recipes like meatballs or meatloaf or shepherd's pie or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Liver is going to be your best source of highly absorbable iron by far. So if you're um, prone to anemia or concerned about anemia, iron is really important to get enough of. And unfortunately, most iron supplements, you know, you don't absorb it very well. So liver ends up being an excellent source. Um, I have several other foods that I could go into and, you know, so many details. So you tell me if you want to hear more of them or if you want to move on. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, well, this is my chosen career path also. So. Yes. Um, and I think most listeners are, the listeners here at Fed and Fit are pretty geeky uh, oriented. Yeah. So feel free to jump into a couple more. Okay. Um, well, I'll share, I'll share one more. I have like, you know, five, six or seven of them that are really my favorites. Um, one that I really want to uh, touch on is, is um, cold water fish, like salmon, fatty fish and other seafood. This is so important for, um, for providing the nutrients for brain development for baby, um, especially the omega-3 fat DHA. Um, and also it does have some choline in it. It has um, a special amino acid called glycine in it, which is important for the development of connective tissue and um, the skeleton of the baby. It also has um, a lot of iodine in it, which is really important to support your thyroid health during pregnancy, which directly affects your baby's brain development as well. Um, there's actually a quote I include in my book that says, um, from the Journal of the American Medical Association, iodine deficiency remains the leading cause of preventable intellectual disability worldwide. The leading cause. It's crazy. It's very, very important nutrient. And food from the ocean or from saltwater sources is going to be your best sources of iodine, which includes fatty fish, but also includes things like seaweed. So I really encourage um, women to include some of their, those foods in their diet. I think a lot of women have been um, scared away from fish because of this um, warnings about mercury. I don't know if you heard some of those yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've actually found that aside from a few fish that are very high in mercury and should be avoided, which is swordfish, king mackerel, and shark, and they also recommend tuna be limited to less than six ounces per week, many other types of fish are perfectly safe to eat. 
while pregnant, even if they contain small amounts of mercury. And that's because fish contains a certain mineral that binds to mercury and prevents it from being absorbed in your body. That's called selenium. So a lot of these fears about mercury have been really overblown. And when you start looking at the studies, you know, the concern about mercury is that it's a, it's a neurotoxin. So, you know, on one hand you have the omega threes, which is good for brain development. On the other hand, you have the mercury, which is not good for brain development. But when you look at the research on, you know, maternal fish consumption and neurodevelopment in babies, actually women who eat more fish um, have better, their children have better neurological outcomes, higher IQ, better communication skills. And actually the worst outcomes, the worst cognitive development are among kids whose mothers consumed no seafood during pregnancy at all. Mm -hmm. So I think when you start to, you know, piece together all these different pieces of information, you can see why, you know, a, traditional cultures really prized seafood, but B, we have definitely a margin of safety in here. And one thing that maybe some, some listeners can, some practical advice they can take with them is that the, um, the best uh, way to determine how much mercury a fish has is how big the fish is. So if you think of, you know, sockeye salmon, which weighs maybe about 15 pounds or so, they also don't live as long, maybe about seven years, they're going to be a better choice, a lower mercury choice than something like albacore tuna, which can weigh up to 130 pounds and live for longer, like 13 years or more. Mm -hmm. So, and then you get down to the even smaller fish, like sardines are fantastic if you like them. They're very tiny. They live a short lifespan. They haven't lived as long to absorb and accumulate as much mercury as other fish, and they're also super high in omega-3s. So um, sometimes that's enough to, to ease the fears around mercury. I love it. That's wonderful. Um, and I actually just did a show. Let me make sure I can remember the name of it correctly, but we just did a podcast on... Uh, wild seafood. So for those of you who are curious and want to hear a little bit more about the mercury-selenium balance, I go into it a little bit there. Um, I think this is a great spot to stop and hear from one of our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers grass-fed, grass-finished, pastured beef, chicken, and heritage breed pork to your door each month. The animals are humanely raised and are never introduced to hormones or antibiotics. I have been a loyal fan and customer of ButcherBox for over a year now and love my monthly butcher box delivery because it helps me get healthy, nutrient-packed protein on my table with ease. To order your own butcher box, head to www.butcherbox.com forward slash fed and fit podcast where you can get $15 off plus free bacon with your order. Again, that's www.butcherbox.com forward slash Fed and Fit podcast for $15 off and free bacon with your order. Um, oh, awesome. Well, this is, that was so great. So those are wonderful foods to include. And those are all things that I definitely enroll in my diet, the sardines, the liver, the eggs, um, a lot of, a lot of fruit, uh, you know, to replace some of those more refined carbohydrates. I would love it if you could, uh, share maybe some of the foods that you would recommend women start to avoid. Maybe they're brand new to a real food lifestyle, um, or maybe they've kind of been dabbling in this somewhat real food, somewhat we're going to just kind of go where the wind blows us. Um, are, there, are there any food, maybe some another top three or four 
that you would recommend staying away from at the beginning? Yes. Someone who's relatively healthy, I guess I should qualify that. Someone going into pregnancy already considering themselves a relatively healthy person and not needing any sort of a special consideration at this point. For everyone, healthy or less than healthy, definitely, as you, as you kind of pointed out already, the refined carbohydrates, those are really important to keep at a minimum during pregnancy as much as you can. Again, first trimester is challenging with the nausea and the food aversions, and there's actually a physiological basis for um, increasing your carbohydrate intake, at least during that time frame, um, if that helps keep your nausea at bay. Some women can like stay fairly low carb and they feel fine. Others, that's all you can tolerate. And I know with my pregnancy, I went through a time period where like you needed carbs. Again, the it's okay to eat more carbs during that time, but you just want to choose the least processed as possible um, because generally the more refined carbohydrates get, which is Typically, refined carbohydrates are those that have been processed pretty heavily, um, usually to remove the fiber or maybe be turned into a flour or starch. So like whole wheat can be refined into white flour, whole corn can be refined into cornstarch, and then even further refined into corn syrup. The more steps that it goes through to be broken down, the less nutrients you have and the more pretty much you just have pure carbohydrate in there. Um, And we know from the there's a lot of studies actually looking at carbohydrate intake on pregnancy outcomes and especially refined carbs. And it's associated with higher rates of weight gain, more likelihood of developing gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. So blood sugar and blood pressure tend to go hand in hand. It's linked to a higher chance of the baby being born too large. And generally the more refined carbohydrates you eat, the less nutrient dense your diet is as a whole. Which makes sense. I mean, if you're filling up on white bread and cookies and cereal, you're going to have less room for vegetables and meat and fish and eggs and nuts and seeds and fruit and other things that have more micronutrients. So definitely watch the refined carbohydrates. Like, just really try to um, find alternatives to having things like white bread and pastas and crackers and um, you know puffed grains like rice cakes, um, anything that's instant, like instant rice, instant noodles, instant potato. Um, I always joke that those raise your blood sugar instantly because if you do work with diabetes, you can see it on, on the blood sugar readings pretty clearly what happens when you eat those foods. So refined carbohydrates are, I almost consider in the same category as sugar. You just, there's just not much in there other than pure, pure sugar, pure carbohydrates, very little micronutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, Another one that I would recommend avoiding is artificial sweeteners. Um, Sometimes women want to use these in place of regular sweeteners because, you know, supposedly, you know, it's, it's sugar free. So it's not going to raise your blood sugar. It's not going to cause any issues. It doesn't have any calories. So you're not going to gain weight. And actually you start looking a little closer at the research and that doesn't actually pan out. So they've actually found higher blood sugar levels in people who eat more artificial sweeteners which they believe is related to changes in um, the gut microbiome. So like the good bacteria that live in your gut can be harmed by some of these sweeteners. Splenda is especially bad because it contains chlorine. And if you know, you use chlorine to disinfect things like bleach and whatever. So um, the Splenda is especially bad. It also has some um, adverse effects on thyroid function. 
again, because it contains chlorine, so it can compete with iodine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also, also shown that in women who drink artificially sweetened drinks during pregnancy in place of sugar-sweetened drinks, so we're talking about women who drink diet soda instead of regular soda. So, again, like, not great, like high sugar intake versus artificial sweetened soda. They actually mm-hmm. found that um, their children are at an increased risk of obesity at age seven, which was opposite of what the research ex- expected because they thought that the women who drank artificial sweeteners and didn't have the refined sugar coming in would have children that fared better. And it was the opposite of what they expected. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of little things that get disrupted in our metabolism by artificial sweeteners and you really want to avoid them um, during pregnancy. And then I'll just point out one more. There's, there's several on my list, but um, just to keep to time, vegetable oils. So vegetable oils are the oils that are extracted from seed crops like canola, soy, corn, safflower, cottonseed. There's a few others. Um, but, you know, up until the last century, humans didn't even have the ability to eat a significant quantity of vegetable oils because it takes intensive modern farming and all sorts of sophisticated machinery to extract and refine and deodorize oils from these seed crops. Um, The reason I recommend avoiding these is that they're high in a a specific type of unsaturated fat called omega-6. And in general, omega-6 fats tend to be pro-inflammatory, especially when they are consumed in larger quantities compared to omega-3 intake. And this is virtually guaranteed if you consume vegetable oils regularly. They've found that women who consume too many omega-6 and not enough omega-3 end up with um, more problems with their pregnancies. So there's, um, you know, higher risk of things like preeclampsia, blood sugar balance kind of gets thrown off because they impair, they mess up your your insulin sensitivity, so they cause you to be more insulin resistant. They've also found that it displaces omega-3 fats um, in cells, which can affect uh, neurodevelopment of babies. So women who consume the most omega-3 fats, their infants have delayed um, fine and gross motor skills. So it's just really important that we prioritize, like fat's important during pregnancy, don't get me wrong, it should make up a a pretty significant portion of your your macronutrient intake while you're pregnant. But you want to focus on quality fats. So skip the uh, refined vegetable oils, um, those that I already listed when I first introduced this topic, and do more fats that are from, you know, more, more natural sources. So animal fats like lard, pork fat, tallow, beef fat, um, enjoying the skin on your chicken, uh, dairy fat, if you do dairy, butter, ghee, heavy cream, those are all good. And then plant fats that are less refined and less high in omega-6s. So olive oil, coconut oil, avocados, nuts, seeds, um, and any unprocessed oils derived from those foods like extra virgin almond oil or something. Those are all fine. Um, We just don't want to consume a huge amount of vegetable oils. Awesome. I love it. Uh, And I'd like to throw in there in a special, I'd like to highlight double underlying trans fats. um, Yes. As as another, usually derived from vegetable sources, but that's um, the one to, another one to avoid. We want to build healthy lipid bilayers for baby and ourselves. Yeah. Quadruple underlying trans fats. (laughs) That's, That's another one on my list as well. That one is actually, even at really low levels of intake, trans fats are associated with placental dysfunction, which impairs the nutrient 
transfer to baby, which is linked to both lower birth weight and a higher risk of preeclampsia and a higher risk of miscarriage or fetal loss. So they're hu- like they are hugely, hugely problematic. Um, I kind of assume most people listening to your show would be like, nah, yeah, I don't eat trans fats. But yeah, if you're, if you're still having any trans fats sneaking in in your diet, really double check those, those ingredient labels and avoid anything that says partially hydrogenated oil. They are like the worst of the worst, like 10 times worse than the vegetable oils for sure. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And just so you guys know, a quick cheat sheet of where those might be found. Those are going to, and this is, I bring it up because in that first trimester, like you've already talked about, you know, if you, if you're hit blindsided, and we're going to talk about this next, if you're blindsided by, you know, this barrage of pregnancy symptoms, a lot of women are, some women aren't, right? Um, and it's different for every person. Mm-hmm. But if all of a sudden you're blindsided and you kind of lose your wits a little bit, right? You're like, I just, I yeah. know I need to get some kind of food in me. Um, the ones, the ones to just avoid if you can are going to be the ones that have those trans fats. Those are going to be those pre-baked shelf-stable baked goods, right? Even if they are gluten-free, read the labels like she said and avoid anything that says has the word partially hydrogenated. Those are the pizzas, frozen cookie or cookies and pizzas and donuts and crusts and biscuits, those kinds of yes. things. Those are the most likely ones that are going to have those partially hydrogenated trans fat oils in them, um, which goes again, hand in hand with the refined yeah. carbohydrate mix. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like a double whammy. It is. And the, and the baker, like the baked goods that they sell at grocery stores, those almost always have trans fats. Like a lot of companies have taken trans fats out of their cookies and whatever, because they want to have, you know, no trans fats on the label. And as we're talking, we should say there's actually a, a labeling loophole that that the FDA allows products to have up to half a gram of trans fats per serving on a product and advertise trans fat free. So you really need to read the ingredient label for partially hydrogenated oils. But that said, I've, I've observed at the grocery store, you know, since trans fat labeling went mandatory in 2006, a lot of companies have voluntarily removed them from products. But these grocery store, like in-house baked goods, they don't have nutrition facts labels on them. They do have ingredients listed. Um, but I feel like because they don't have to put any advertising on it of like trans fat free or whatever, they hide so many trans fats in those, especially frosted baked goods. They almost always put it in the frosting because it doesn't melt when it has trans fats in it. Mm-hmm. Think Crisco, you know, if you, if yes. you, if you're looking for a, a mental visual, that's so true. What a great tip, Lily. Okay. So, um, we are, we're getting close to time, but I, I know I can't let you go. It's okay. I hope you guys listening, if you're, if you're in this still, um, then you're, you probably want to hear these next couple of questions. Um, so I would love it if you could address a question I get a lot from readers and listeners who email me are they are pregnant and they're experiencing some pregnancy symptoms and they want to know two things. Okay. They want to know, let's say whether it's morning sickness, headaches, which is what I had. I had migraines in my first trimester, um, morning sickness, headaches, um, gosh, what are some of the other ones? Extreme exhaustion. All of these, some of these are, are going to just your body chemistry is changing significantly in these first, 
you know, a few weeks and few months. Um, and so don't be hard on yourself, but people want to troubleshoot. Is there something I can be doing better? And if I'm having these, this morning sickness and these severe food aversions, what, what can I eat? <laughs> you know, that, what do you recommend yeah. that I eat? Um, to get down just to focus on and I would love it if you could share your take on some advice on a how to troubleshoot some of these common pregnancy symptoms if yeah. it's something nutritionally related um, from a holistic nutrition perspective and then B uh, for folks who are having trouble really getting anything down um, yeah. what do you recommend that they focus on sure those are really great questions and I get a lot of those in my practice too um, and I was kind of blindsided by how serious the exhaustion was my nausea was like sort of moderate like I wasn't thrown up all day but man I was so tired <laughs> in the first trimester it was crazy um so first and foremost pregnancy is a really important time to to start being really mindful about the cues your body is sending you and also being really kind to yourself because I think there's a maybe a misconception in the media that that makes it seem like oh you're pregnant but you're fine you can do anything still like you're you're a woman you can do it all run a business and and be pregnant or have a baby or do all these things and and never slow down and it's it's okay to slow down and it's okay to take things off your plate when you're really tired or nauseous or whatever is going on in your pregnancy so mm -hmm. self-care first and foremost um Nutritionally, yes, there's a ton that's changing, like just on a physiologic basis in your body that can be the underlying reason why food aversions and nausea and some of these things crop up. One that's big that's going on is your blood volume is increasing. So um, you'll have a lot more fluids in your body in total between the extra fluids in your bloodstream and the extra amniotic fluid while you're pregnant. And a lot of those systems that are like sort of gearing up for the major changes that happen in the second and third trimester are actually happening in the first trimester as well. You just don't necessarily feel the symptoms as much um, or you're not, you're not, you don't have a, you know, a, a basketball on your belly to remind you <laughs> that, that it's okay that you're feeling that. Um, but your fluid volume, fluid needs already start to go up um, pretty early on in pregnancy. And with that, your electrolyte needs go up as well. So a lot of the um, headaches and even some of the nausea can be related to um, electrolyte imbalances. A lot of women will drink extra water, but fail to include extra electrolytes. And one of the most important electrolytes is salt. So I don't know if you experience this, but some women notice they have cravings for sour and salty foods, or maybe that's the only thing they can keep down when they're nauseous. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good reason for that because the sour and salty foods are also giving you electrolytes, which is helping you with your fluid balance. So um, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Also, cravings for carbohydrates tend to be higher in the first trimester or maybe are the only foods that you can keep down. And this also has a, a potential physiologic basis because your pancreas actually produces more insulin during pregnancy. By the third trimester, it can pr produce triple the amount of insulin. Um, and the changes that allow that to happen are already taking place in the first trimester. Your insulin production isn't super, super high yet, but it is a little higher than normal, and your pancreas is going through dramatic changes, and you're more prone to hypoglycemia. So 
when your blood sugar is too low, your body tells you it needs to raise it back up and it tells you the foods that are going to raise it back up, which are carbs. It's tricky because on one hand, like too many carbohydrates can cause issues. On the other hand, if you like avoid carbohydrates completely, you may feel worse. And again, I think there's a physiological reason that some of these carb cravings um, come into play. The, the challenge is you want to eat you want to try if your if your aversions or nausea will allow. You want to try to eat more than just carbohydrates by themselves, because sometimes it can get you in a cycle of like boosting your blood sugar for 30 minutes and then crashing it again, and then the nausea gets even worse and your exhaustion gets even worse. Mm-hmm. So if at all possible, like if you're super nauseous, if you can tolerate a little carbohydrates, great. After you get to that point, you also want to try to incorporate some other items that have fat and protein in there as well. So, you know, I'll use like a, a, you know, not super paleo ancestral example, but like say the only thing you can eat is bread. It'd be better to have that piece of bread with butter on it or peanut butter or a piece of cheese or some meat or something than it would be to have the bread by itself because at least it'll, it'll help stabilize your blood sugar a little better. Also, you'll get a little more than just pure carbs in your system. We could do a better example. You could, you know, do like an apple and almond butter or something if you want to do fruit instead of bread. But really, a lot of women get drawn to like grain and starchy carbohydrates early on. And I, I think there's there's probably something to it. <laughs> I think there is too. And I did. I just so I, I don't want folks to think that um, I, you know, like I have this very staunch paleo perspective. I, I've talked about it a lot, but um, I was blindsided by uh, just my exhaustion as well in that first trimester. And for whatever reason, because I was recipe developing with these gluten-free graham crackers, I had too many of them on, on hand. And that is what my body <laughs> wanted, yes. um, you know, and the breads and things like that, of course. And I eventually started to rotate those over to fruit-based sources, yes. there comes a time and a place for that. And I think that just gravitating towards the best option for what yes. you get down is okay. Yes. And to Lily's point, enrolling some good protein and some fat sources, I think is really smart. You can really kind of help turn it into a full-blown snack versus then also putting your body through that blood sugar crash. Yes, exactly. And it seems from what I notice, and maybe you notice this in your practice, um, Having, if you can, sometimes the mornings are really challenging. If you can get some protein and fat in your morning, oftentimes that helps set up your blood sugar balance for the rest of the day. So like I noticed personally, I couldn't have eggs first thing in the morning. I, what did I do? I think I kept like cashews by the side of my bed because crackers or something gave me too much of a blood sugar crash. So cashews, they're, they're actually kind of higher carbohydrate for in, in the category of nuts, but that was like the perfect balance. I already had my like fat carbs and protein in there. I'd like wake up, nosh on some cashews. That would kind of settle my stomach, get out of bed slowly. Sometimes quick movements make nausea worse. Um, and then after maybe an hour, or I don't know how long I would, I would then go and have like a real breakfast. And it, it, for a while in the first trimester anyways, it was kind of small, but if I could get my egg in in the morning and literally like one egg, which is so small, but sometimes that's all you can do in the first trimester. Um, if I could get that egg in, I would be pretty good the rest of the day. And I noticed when I did just carbohydrates 
you know, like, oh, I'll just have this gluten-free bread and butter. Like, it, I was on such a blood sugar roller coaster that my nausea was way worse because mm-hmm. hunger tends to trigger nausea as well. So if you can try to squeeze in some protein in the morning, that's helpful. Um, some of my clients do well with, like, a good quality protein shake. Normally, I'm not huge on like, protein powders and whatnot, but sometimes it works. I even have clients who can open up their, you know, prenatal vitamin capsule into their shake and they get it down. It, they tolerate it really well. It helps with the rest of the day. So it's really awesome. just, pick. you know, it, you have to pick your battles. You have to trust that your body has some nutrient reserves to carry you through. If, like, not eating perfectly in the first trimester was, like, a deal breaker for pregnancy, <laughs> like nobody would nobody would continue being pregnant you know it's like, almost everybody has some bumps in the road in the first trimester and and it's okay you just have to do your best to to get through it it's so true that's such a great message lily i really appreciate it um I think that I think that a lot, and this is the nature of the notes that I get. Are there a lot of women out there who come from this? I work out, I do all these great things, and then I got pregnant, and now I feel like I'm failing at my nutrition yeah. Yeah. Uh, plan. And I, I want additionally, I just want to just reiterate that: um, do your best, and this too shall pass. And, uh, and do, and really, this is a part of the process and something that we've said a lot, um, or I've, I've reiterated a lot. I had invited Brianna battles onto the podcast and she keeps saying she didn't coin the term, but I really love it. And she's where I heard it first. So that's where I give credit is uh, that, you know, pregnancy is temporary and postpartum is forever. And so just remember that this phase is temporary. Do the best with what you have and the knowledge that you have. You know, we know better, we do better, and then move on. Um, and then to touch one more thing on the electrolyte drink, just because I want to give folks a quick takeaway. One of the things that I started doing as far as helping to balance, rebalance out electrolytes in my second and third time, oh my gosh, we threw everything on the fire in that first trimester. We figured out that um, wheat gluten was triggering my migraines. But but, um, that being said, as blood volume did increase, I could feel, you know, when you have those muscle twinges and tweaks, it could be a sign of an electrolyte imbalance. We would get coconut water or, or, gosh, what are they making? Watermelon water now, which both have pretty good sources of potassium and put a pinch of sea salt in it, shake it up, and you essentially have a pretty good electrolyte supplement. So if you're looking for more of a real food-based electrolyte drink, that's something that I have kept in my refrigerator this entire pregnancy. Things that I've kept on hand have been, you know, fruit. Um, some of those small cold water fish that you mentioned, the liver, trying to get that in every week uh, in some form or fashion. I'm not a liver hero. I can't just fry it up and get it down, but I'll mix yeah. it and mash Damn. it. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Um, the electrolyte thing is great. Um, keep it on hand when you go into labor, too. <laughs> it's also yeah. helpful for that, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's in my, my little hospital cooler bag plan. Oh, but. Perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about salt. A lot of women think that the salt is going to make them puffy or make their blood pressure go up. It's probably too much to discuss in the time we have um, today, but I have a ton of discussion on the importance of salt in pregnancy and how it actually does not contribute to high blood pressure or preeclampsia and, in fact, may improve those conditions. So inadequate salt and, and electrolyte imbalance can be associated with 
these um, high blood pressure and edema and swelling and those things that women have. So um, yeah, it's, it's an essential nutrient. <laughs> we need it to have is. it on hand. Oh man, that's so exciting. Well, I, I've kept you probably too long already. Thank you guys for sticking with us all this time. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lily. This was an awesome conversation. Yes. Thanks for having me, Cassie, and uh, sending all my positive birth vibes out to you. And Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Could you remind folks just one more time where they can find you, where they can find your book as well? Yes, you can find me at PilatesNutritionist.com and my forthcoming book, which will be released by the time this goes live, is Real Food for Pregnancy. And you can find that at RealFoodForPregnancy.com. Woo, that's nice and easy. And if you're yep. driving and you didn't, couldn't write that down, don't worry because we've got all the links uh, provided in the show notes. So that'll be there handy for you. Lily, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you the best with the upcoming book release or the now having happened book release a couple days ago. <laughs> <laughs> like it's time warp. I uh, know. And, uh, and I will continue to cheer you on. And if you guys have any questions for Lily, I think a really great way uh, to probably continue this conversation would be to head, reach out to her directly, of course, but head to the blog post when the show is up and we get the transcript loaded where you can review what we've talked about and go ahead and leave a question there. That would be a great place to kind of start some dialogue um, and a reference point. But thanks again so much for coming on, Lily. Really appreciate it. Everybody else, thanks for dialing in. We'll be back again next week. 